16 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judea. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before them and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone out with David said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given us into the hand of the band and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judea, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, on Negeb, to Jeter, and to Aherah, and Ziphmoth, and Eshtemoah, and Rachel, and the cities of the Jeremiahites, and the cities of the Kenites in Hormah, and the Borsashon, and the Atak in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So ends the reading of God's word. Children ages three to kindergarten may now proceed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Well done, Larry, on those names and words. Anybody want to volunteer for being pastoral assist? I need God's help. Oh, I need God's help. Let's pray one more time. Father, I feel so weak right now. I feel like I am unable to make plain the glorious word you've shown me. I I feel like I need your help energy-wise. I feel like I need your help with clarity of mind. I feel weak. I'm boasting before you in my weakness so that if any good thing comes out of this, you would receive all the credit and glory. Thank you, Lord, for weakness, for in my weakness, your strength is made perfect. Show off yourself. Show off how strong you are. Show off how strong you are to the people that are here and those who are watching by live stream and recording. Show off your strength to people around the world who are in the same and far worse condition of weakness than we can even imagine. Get glory for yourself as the strong, the mighty, the rescuing, the victorious one. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage 
all of chapter 30, is all about living the normal, victorious Christian life. Don't think for a moment that if you see David here in this chapter being exalted and Saul being put down, you see this massive contrast, but don't think you're somewhere in the middle. David is living in a way that all normal Christians will follow his example. We'll see four ways that David is living the normal, victorious Christian life here in 1 Samuel chapter 30. You're to join him, and I'm to join him in living all four of those same ways. We looked at two of them last Lord's Day. We'll go over those quickly by way of review, and we will come to and give more attention to the second two ways that we live out the normal, victorious Christian life on the second half of chapter 30, the portion that Larry just read. You know that Jesus came, and he said, I came not to go on a vacation from heaven, not to go on a fact-finding trip, not to explore, but to fulfill a mission, a mission to battle and a mission to win a victory. He was sent by the Father to fulfill his mission. Matthew, the gospel writer, records Jesus teaching on his mission as he quotes Isaiah 61 in Matthew chapter 12. Here's Jesus saying, or the writer Matthew saying of Jesus, Behold my servant, Jesus, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. He comes to the weary and to the hurting and to the afflicted and to the guilty and to the sad and to the sick and to the weak. And he says, I didn't come to make your life worse. I came to hold you, to redeem you, to forgive you, and to bring you all the way up to God. I came to achieve justice all the way up into the victory that our God shall have for himself. And of course, he achieves that by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again on the third day. And Paul exults in the victory we have in Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us, what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. What does it look like to live out the Christian life in victory? John the gospel writer, writes an epistle and explains clearly, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That word overcome is related to the victory. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? These are massive promises that describe the normal Christian life. If you don't feel like you have victory in your Christian life, then God's here by the Spirit through this passage and the weakness of my message to create his normal, faith-filled life of victory in your life. He means for you 
to have constant and ever-growing victory over patterns of sin. He means for you to have constant and ever-growing victory over temptations to act or feel or think in a way that you know is displeasing to the Lord. He means to come with victorious power in your life to remove all fears in your life and banish them so that you have one remaining fear in your life, that is the fear of God himself. Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite preachers, so thankful for his books and his preaching ministry. I listen to him often. He's the, he's the pastor that feeds my soul, Sinclair Ferguson. He says, you know in the normal Christian life, the way all other fears are banished is by the receiving and the stirring or fomenting of the one single fear of God. Oh, I thank God for wise, clear profound insights from men like Sinclair Ferguson that help orient my life around God and give me the ability then to watch all the other fears that so easily beset me fall away. The setting, you might remember, is at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is uh, running from God, hardened against God. He doesn't seek God. In fact, he runs away from God and he blames God for that happening and then he goes and seeks to make a deal with the devil. He consults a witch even though he made that unlawful. And Samuel stands forth from the dead in a vision and tells him, Saul, everything you already heard is true. It's all going to come to pass. You and your sons, they're going to die in battle tomorrow. By contrast, David is rising. He's high in this climactic chapter. As I mentioned, four different ways he demonstrates the normal Christian life for us, but he does so showing that he's the one God is preparing to be king of Israel. This is the kind of leader we want in the nations of the world. This is the kind of leaders we want leading our churches. This is the kind of leaders we want leading marriages and families, leading militaries and businesses, leading schools and hospitals and every entity imaginable. These kinds of leaders seek hard after God. David is a man after God's own heart, and that's what makes him a profound and effective leader, a normal person within the Christian church. Oh, I hope the victory of God is real in your life. In four ways we see David functioning in the normal Christian life. What does he do in these four observations that I make from chapter 30? First, he seeks God. Second, he finds God. Third, he fights for God. And fourth, he gives like God. First, he seeks God. Second, he finds God. Third, he fights for God. And fourth, he gives like God. Let's look at the first two briefly and pause a bit more for rich insight on the second two. Verses 1 through 10. You might remember David and his band of 600 men were spared the horror of having to fight in the battle between Israel and the Philistines. They didn't have to fight for either side. Thank the Lord they could go back to Ziklag because the Philistine generals didn't trust them. That was God's rescue. They walk for three days and they're tired and weary and exhausted. Yet when they arrive in their home city of Ziklag, they find it burned and all their families kidnapped by the Amalekites. David is so distressed, they've wept till they have no more tears. Even his men turn against him in mutinous rejection, mutinous coup against him and say, let's stone David. He's the one who got us into this mess. In the midst of David's trial and sorrow, when the world and circumstances around him have turned against him, 
when even his own friends can't be trusted to support him, what does David do? He strengthens himself in the Lord his God. That's verse 6. He strengthens himself in the Lord his God. More than that, and in verses 7 through 8, he gathers with himself the, the priest and prophets around him, and he seeks God's will. What should he do? I'm strengthened in you, God. I have sought you. I have heard your voice. I have remembered all that you have done in the past. I know you are for me. And now what should I do? And he seeks, as is clear from verses 7 and 8. Read these with me. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. David knows exactly what to do. Living the normal Christian life isn't wondering what God wants you to do next. It's in such close communion with him that you're hearing his voice and you're communing with him regularly. Charles Spurgeon created a devotional book called Morning and Evening for the very express purpose of helping his people strengthen themselves in the Lord his God twice every day, morning and evening. That's the normal Christian life. If I was a quarter of the pastor of Charles Spurgeon, I'd create the same morning and evening devotional for you. You don't need one for me. Go read his. It's the normal Christian life to say, I'm going to seek you in the morning, Lord. I'm going to seek you in the evening. Of course, he gets that from the psalmist. And I'm going to, I'm going to seek you during the day, and I'm going to watch you as you move through my day. Wherever I go, I want eyes of faith in my walk with you to see your hand clearly pointing and guiding me from within and from without throughout my life. David, in fact, hears from the Lord, and he sets out with his 600 men. They're exhausted. But can you imagine? They wouldn't give themselves a meal or any sleep until they restored their families to themselves. I understand completely why he sets out immediately. His resolve, his courage, his boldness to hear from the Lord and go against a larger, fierce enemy that has already won a, a tremendous, devastating victory against him in his city, Ziklag. Still, he sets out. We're told in the, in the next verses that some were so tired that they remained uh, at the brook at Bezor, 200 of them. And so 400 with David went on. We see David seeking the Lord. This is the normal Christian life. We also see now David finding the Lord again. Something that victorious believers do in a normal way. They find God. Look at verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake and figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he'd eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Then he has a conversation with David. And David says, will you show me exactly where your Amalekite band is camped out? We're going to go overtake them. And the Egyptian says, well, if you swear to me that you'll protect me, I'll lead you to them. You see, if David would have waited any longer, this man who has been sick and was left to die out in the middle of the, the wilderness would have died and David would not have found God's guidance through him. It's no accident that this man got sick on the very day that he and others had burned David's city and taken David's families. It's no accident that this man was, was hit upon by David and it's no accident David left when he did 
so that he would come to this Egyptian before this Egyptian died. And it's no accident that this Egyptian was, in fact, willing to lead David and his band of men right to the Amalekites. You see, believers in Jesus Christ living the normal, victorious Christian life are seeking the Lord, and they are also finding the Lord. They're finding the details of life in which God is showing himself and guiding himself and leading you and me in very specific and detailed ways. He's done that all through my life, the life of my wife and my family. He's done that in your life. He means to do that on a regular basis. It's how he will guide his King David to lead his precious chosen people, Israel. But more than that, it's how he leads believers throughout the history of the church, the true Israel as he guides us by his Holy Spirit to the people, to the places, to the opportunities, to the conversations that he means for us to have. Living the normal Christian life seeks the Lord morning and evening and finds him. It finds him in all the details of life. We trust in God's providence. We trust in God's guidance by the Holy Spirit to lead us where he'd have us go and open our eyes to see what we're to see when we're there. Thirdly, we see that godly believers in Jesus Christ will fight for God. They will fight for God. What about all the passages in the Bible that teach that him who keeps his mind stayed on thee will find perfect peace? Isaiah 26.3. What about all the promises of peace in the Old and the New Testament to dramatize and define the normal Christian life? What about all the peace promises? And here you say the normal Christian life includes fighting. Here's how I put them together. You'll see a fighting here in verses 16 through 20. But it's a kind of fighting that isn't fighting for its own sake. It isn't fighting because fighting is the definition or quality of the person who trusts in God in a normal and victorious way. Rather, fighting is the posture of someone who recognizes how precious peace is and sees how many forces are trying to destroy it. It's a defensive fighting that says, Lord, I want to so fear you and please you that I'm willing to fight through any threat to that peace. So you find the Apostle Paul talking about peace in a wonderful way, not in a sedated way. Christ doesn't die on the cross and rise again and give us peace just so that we would be lulled to sleep and sedated. So many people are running to substances and experiences. They're running to relationships and friendships. They're running to ideas and worldviews that seem to give them somewhat of a dull sedation. Like they're putting some cover over their head and they like it like give me something that blocks my ears and blocks my eyes and I'll really like it that sounds weird to me but people are buying stuff like that and delighting on what false things are going on inside instead of engaging in the reality that's outside them here you have Paul saying to the Colossians Let the peace of Christ sedate you? No. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Why? Because your hearts are unruly. Your hearts want to run from the things that make for peace. 
Your hearts want to run to the things that destroy your peace. So peace must come with a bite into the Christian life and rule over every impulse or desire or temptation that threatens it. That's the kind of peace David's living in, even though he's marching off to war. He's got 400 with him. He's left 200 back at the stream. The Egyptian is with him and guiding him on his way to the very camp where the Amalekites are. And he's confident that God said, pursue and overtake, and then put this Egyptian right in the midst of their path so he would know just where to go. Look at what happens. They arrive Verse 16, and when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land. They weren't formed up like an army. They weren't expecting David to come. They were eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Can you imagine the reunion? Nothing was missing, neither small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. This is David fighting for God and winning a victory for Israel. Winning a victory for his 600 men and their families. Capturing flocks and herds. People drove livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. David struck down the Philistines who were flush with boasting and with reveling and partying. Not ready for him to come running out thinking he could never even find us. And yet by God's design, David not only found them but overtook them. This is the exact opposite of what Saul was supposed to do. It was what Saul was supposed to do and what Saul ended up doing. It's the exact opposite. This is the very reason why David is raised up as a king over Israel and why Saul was removed as king over Israel. Samuel explains when he was raised and spoke to Saul, it's because you didn't wipe out the Amalekites that Saul, that God has removed you from being king over Israel and replaced you with David. David's obedience is precious and beautiful here. He's not perfect, and we're not to look to him as a perfect example. Only his son, the son of David, Christ, is perfect. But the contrast between David's obedience and Saul's disobedience is clear and stunning. And we're supposed to see it here at the end and closing chapters of 1 Samuel. Where does David's courage come from? Where does David's courage come from? He's got this fearless, bold resolve to go fight for God. I just wonder how many battles in our culture today have gone, surrendered, and and given over to the forces of darkness and of falsehood and of error because the church lacks this kind of boldness. I think I lack this kind of boldness. I want to be able to be like David and stand up in the face of darkness and say, I will do whatever it takes to rescue the soul of my wife and my children. I will do whatever it takes to rescue the souls of the people under my care at this church. I will do whatever it takes to exalt Christ and to put down evil, even if it's the very last battle I fight. 
David here is pointing to the kind of battle that his descendant, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, fought. A far larger one than just a band of Amalekites. Jesus Christ came into the world and he fought a battle against the devil, against sin, against the wrath of God, and against evil. And Hebrews 2, 14 through 16 captures the kind of battle David's son, Jesus Christ, the righteous, fought for us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, David's wives and children and all the wives and children of his 600 men were probably taken into slavery. And David comes as a foretaste of Christ, as it were, and he destroys the Amalekites. And he delivers and rescues out of their grip and out of the fear of death those that he loved so much, a part of his kingdom, and rescued them. He rescued them all. Not one animal was missing, not one item of spoil, and not one person. So the first way to ponder David's victorious battle here is to see how it is in line with and points to, by suggestion, the great battle Christ has won for us and receive his victory on your behalf. Receive his victory on your behalf. You're the children. You're the wives. You're the one tied up in slavery by sin. Will David even find us? Is he even alive? Will any of his men have the energy to join and come with him? And yet David comes at twilight and destroys the entire Amalekite camp, leaving only 400 young men to flee, and he rescues and saves his family, his kingdom. Christ has done the very same. Christ will be utterly successful. Christ has come from the Father under his mandate, and he surely will pursue, and he surely will deliver. Christ will be utterly successful. The most triumphant enterprise you can ever engage in is the witnessing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to lost people. Because Christ will gather his sheep. Surely they will come. Then there's a waging of battle yourself. The way the New Testament talks to believers who have been rescued by Christ is now don't just sit back and watch and participate, but join the battle. Listen to the passage Paul writes again to the Colossians in chapter 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's your rescue. There's your protection. There's your salvation. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, murder, Kill, assassinate. How many thesaurus words can you come up with for this? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Victory is achieved. Victory is assured. Therefore, wage the war that shows you will fully participate in it. Fourth and finally, 
Once normal Christian believers in victory by faith seek the Lord, then they find him. And then they are clear in their minds and emboldened in their hearts to fight for him. The result and fourth descriptor of them is that they give like the Lord. I get that from verses 21 through 28. Specifically, look at verses 21 through 25 with me. Then David came to the 200 men who had been exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. We don't want anything more to do with these guys. They didn't join in with us when we were all tired. They stayed back at the brook, 200 of them. They don't deserve to receive all the spoil that we got because we did all the hard work. Right, David? That's fair, right, David? Isn't that the way you should run your kingdom, David? Isn't that the way you should run your household, dads? Isn't that the way you should run your church, elders and pastor? It's fair. If you do the work, you get the spoils. If you don't do the work, take your family and depart. Look at David's response. Verse 23, but David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. How kind he is to address these wicked men as brothers. They're suggesting a law-driven, cold, graceless, merciless response from David after this battle that they've just won. And David mercifully calls them brothers. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. You see what he says to them? He says, you're not the one who got the spoil for yourself. I'm not the one who got the spoil for you or for me. The Lord gave the spoil to us. The Lord put the Egyptian in the path that we were walking, looking for the Amalekites. And he kept him alive for three days so that we would find out exactly where the camp is. The Lord has given these wives and children and spoil and animals back into our hands. It's the Lord who has given us, he goes on, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. So when we fought the battle, God fought for us and he gave them into our hands. Do you see how God-centered his perspective is? Do you see how radically God-saturated his thinking is? It, 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 it impacts decisions of money and of wealth and of distribution, and of economy, and of order. You'll come up with what sounds like a really reasonable, just, fair, that hurts, so I'm hurting back, they got what they deserve, I get what I deserve kind of mentality. You'll be a perfect legalist. We're all born legalists. We become super legalists as soon as you take God out of every picture, every marriage, every family, every city, every nation, every church. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? In other words, only wicked people would agree with you. For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And David's not even king yet, and he says... 
And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. You see, there's a unity among the brothers. There's a connectedness between David and the brothers that says if some of these brothers go out under David's leadership and they fight a great battle and a great spoil and a great rescue and a great wonderful outcome has been achieved, then everyone who is united with them also receives the blessings. It's exactly, exactly what we mean by the glorious worth of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and fighting the fight of sin for us so that he might come down off the cross and be exalted with a name above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we, who didn't do any fighting and dare not apply our works to the fighting of the battle of sin as if to insult Jesus' works, receive all the benefits that Jesus receives. We receive all the benefits that Jesus receives. All the love that God has for Jesus, he lavishes upon those who are in Christ Jesus. These 200 men back at the brook couldn't believe it that they're sitting back there saying, I can't believe I don't have the strength to go get my wife. I can't believe I don't have the strength to go get my son and my daughter. I can't move. And then David comes marching back with his huge entourage of his 400 men and all the wives and the sons. Not one is missing. Can you imagine the reunion of those 200 men getting all their families and all their wealth and animals back and it was purchased for them by David fighting on their behalf. you got to see the gospel here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. David is a giver. It's what the normal Christian life is marked by. Look at how the chapter ends. He and his band had gone through city after city and some had treated him well and some had treated him poorly. You look at the list of these hard to pronounce cities and regions and you realize this is the area David is about to become king over. The battle Saul fights and dies in, makes the throne empty, and David's about to walk in victory right into the throne of Israel. And he's going to rule over Judah specifically, as we'll see history unfold. And you'll see that Ziklag is the first one, Hebron is the last one. Ziklag is where he first reigned, and he reigns for seven years in Hebron. The writer of 1 Samuel is saying here by this paragraph, this is David giving spoils back to people who had been robbed by the Philistines or the Amalekites. This is David distributing with generosity and with kindness. This is David being the exact opposite of Saul. Samuel said when he was alive, you have Saul as a king like the rest of the kings of the pagan nations. He's going to take everything from you. He's going to take your kids, he's going to take your taxes, he's going to take your donkeys, your land, and your wealth, and all the fruit of your labor in your 
in your fields. He's going to take it all. And here's David who comes, and before he's even king, he says, oh, I have gifts for all the communities that I'm going to reign over. David here points to the giving nature of our God in Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You can't outgive Christ. He's the most giving person you can conceive. Everything you have is a gift from him. Everything you truly desire for your good is a gift from him. Everything you need is a gift from him. And then he lavishes an infinity, an eternity, a numberless amount of grace and mercy, giving it upon you in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Oh, that our capacities for receiving the gifts of Christ would grow and grow and grow in these short, vaporous years while we live here so that we can receive all that he's going to give us forever in heaven. Historians tell us that it isn't economies that are rising high and expanding It isn't times of wealth where jobs are plentiful and money flows freely. That's not at times when churches are prone to give much. The percentage of giving during times of economic prosperity in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States, according to one historian, is right around 0.2%. giving skyrockets during times of war and during times of poverty and during times of need. Why is that? Because giving doesn't come from having a lot of money. Giving comes from having God. We are a church filled with men and women As I was writing this, I was thinking, how many men and women are in this very church faith family who are are like David living the normal victorious Christian life? They seek God regularly. They find him repeatedly. They fight for him in all the beautiful ways that the New Testament commands us to fight in spiritual battles for God. And they're a generous people. They're a generous people. We're a generous church, but that's no pat on our back. That's all praise and honor to the Lord. I can't believe how generous this church is. We don't need sermons on giving, goodness sakes. Maybe the only giving we need to think about is giving beyond our needs and beyond our circles. That's where I feel the Holy Spirit pinching me is to give beyond what I'm normally aware of or thinking about. If you're facing... A David-like, multi-layered battle where you're so tired, all your life you've been chased, lied about, attacked wrongly. You're 
living right in enemy territory in a small community that you've made for yourselves and you don't feel at home. You feel so unsettled there. You feel so out of place there. It's not where you should be. You can't even worship right because it's not even your own land. And and you're so eager to please and do God's will, but it seems like every time you go out to do God's will, you have to it gets missed and people don't see it. It doesn't get recognized. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to, to, to get the outcome that you expected. And then you're out seeking to serve God's will and you come back and you find that all the things that you thought you were hanging on to were just trashed. My family and I resigned from a church in Michigan in 2015 and it was a painful time. We put lots of our belongings in storage And we were waiting for the Lord's guidance and next steps for us, feeling in a fraction a little bit like how it seems to me David might be feeling while he's living in Ziklag. And then we got a call one day. Oh, by the way, your storage unit down in the Twin Cities was broken into and lots of stuff was stolen. Oh, that was our little Ziklag moment. God has met us every step of the way. He sustained us every step of the way. He's taken care of us. He's provided for us. We have all that we need and much more. He's given us plain, clear guidance. We sense his love and his his putting Egyptians right in front of us, telling us exactly where to go. We've sought him. He's helped us do that. We found him. He's helped us do that. We have sought to fight, but there's so much more to be done there. And God has helped us to give all praise to him, none to us. I invite you to the normal Christian life. I invite you to live this. I invite you to say to the Lord in your chair right now or up up in front here with those ready to pray with you or while we're singing or while we're having our lunch together, I invite you to say, Lord, I want to live the life that seeks you, finds you, fights for you, and gives like you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for David's life. He's off the scene now after a glorious look at how you prepared a king for Israel and how you took down a king who served Israel poorly. How I thank you for the sobering chapter that lies before us next in the death of King Saul, for it is a chapter in which you, the promise-making God, keep your word invariably and irrevocably. We bow before you trembling and thankful, eager and hopeful that you might make us David types, that men and women within this faith family would live out the normal Christian life in these very ways, that we might be used in the brief time that we live on these quadrants of the earth to serve you with joy, with faith, with victory, with obedience, with blessing. I want to be like that more than I ever yet have, Lord, and I want to join these dear ones as we seek that, even in prayer in these quiet moments. Make us to live the normal, victorious Christian life. The, what Jesus later calls the abundant life. This is the life we would live, Lord, and please you in doing it. For you are the beginning of it, the sustainer of it, and the one receiving all the glory at the conclusion of it. So from you and through you and be to you all things, through Christ I pray. Amen. Let's respond to God's word.